If you have your Bibles with you today, open them to the book of Lamentations. Uh, That is a small book kind of shoveled into the middle of the major prophets after the book of Jeremiah and before the book of Ezekiel. Our worship music, the music that we sing, is meant to sort of set the emotional pace for us as we gather together to worship God. Uh, we, we sing of the gospel, we, we sing of the victory of Jesus Christ. We have several times already this morning. And it doesn't just set it in, the music that we listen to doesn't just set the tone for our worship, it sets the tone for our lives. The kind of music that you listen to in, in the car, the type of music that you listen to around the house sets sort of your, uh, your emotional tone for how you handle things. Because of that, most music is meant to be uplifting. It's meant to be Music that makes you rejoice. Most Christian music, especially, is found that way. You know, look through the list of the top Christian songs at any one point in time, and and almost without exception, nine of those songs will be very not only upbeat in their melodies, will be will be pleasant, but more than that, the words will remind us that we are to rejoice and we are to be happy and we are to think of the good things that God has given to us. Even the names of Christian radio stations and their little catchphrases that they are positive and encouraging or that they are family friendly because that's what we need family have you read the bible the bible is not terribly family friendly uh, i mean we we have to in our devotionals we have to skip some things every once in a while right so so it's always curious to me that that we want radio stations that are positive and encouraging when the bible is not always positive and encouraging and family friendly when the bible is not certainly there are more things in this world than just rejoicing we were reminded that Jesus Christ himself was a man of sorrows. Now, that was not all he was. And we can't simply say that he was a man of sorrows and leave it at that. But he certainly wasn't a fool who thought that this world was a, an easy place to live and easy for the people that he was going to come and minister to and even easy for him as he was to take on the sin of the world. Certainly, we also know that as we live in this world, And as it's filled with sin, there will be times in our lives when we see sin in others, when we see sin in our own lives, when we see the sin of the world. And it is not a cause for rejoicing, but it is a cause for weeping and mourning. And so as we continue to look at prayer today and how we are to pray before God, we've talked for two weeks in a row now about giving thanks to God, both for him in the good things that he gives to us and in the difficult times that we might experience, but there's also a time of lamentation that we should have, a time of sorrow and of grief, and no better place to go than the book that was written about lamentations, the book of Lamentations. The book itself was written most likely by the prophet Jeremiah. That is why in your Bible it's placed directly after his book. Now, we don't have him as the actual author in Scripture, and frankly, it doesn't actually matter if Jeremiah was the author, but chances are that he actually was the author. We have in 2 Chronicles 35.25 this, that Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. It is likely that those laments are the laments that we have here before us today. It is likely, given the timing of the book, given the the very nature of the book, if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you know who Jeremiah was. Jeremiah was a pretty dour man. He, He wasn't a happy prophet. He was a very sad prophet. And so the book of Lamentations seems to be written by him. Uh, The anecdotal evidence of the book seems to say that he wrote it. And so when I refer to the author of Lamentations, I will refer to him as Jeremiah. What's more, the layout of the book is very particular. There are five distinct chapters in the book, and each one is sort of an acrostic poem with the exception of chapter five. The first two chapters are just general acrostics, which each consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet taking up the line. So it goes A, B, C. And there are 22 verses because there are 22 letters in the alphabet. Chapter 2 repeats, starting all over with the first letter of the alphabet. But chapter 3, if you look at it, is 66 verses because instead of having each individual stanza, they go three at a time. So A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. Chapter 4 repeats this. Chapter 5 has 22 lines, but they are not acrostic. Each one of these chapters kind of stands on its own. 
the lament of this book is focused on the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the southern kingdom. So Israel was split into two parts, northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was exiled in 720 by the Assyrians. Around 586, the southern kingdom was going to be sent away by the Babylonians. And it was a total and abject disaster. Suffering that we will read of unlike any suffering that you or I will likely or hopefully ever go through. Jeremiah was set aside from the very birth in the womb. He was set aside to proclaim the message of the coming disaster to Judah. And it was not going to be a message that was well received. In Jeremiah 15:1, the Lord said to Jeremiah, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. The disaster that Jeremiah foretold would not be turned aside to the left or to the right. That disaster was coming. Jeremiah's message was not, you can escape the disaster. Jeremiah's message was prepare for the disaster. Jeremiah lived through that disaster. The people did not listen to his words. Instead, what they listened to were false prophets who kept telling them that everything is going to be okay. They kept proclaiming God's love on everyone, saying, God loves you. God will take care of you. Everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about the Babylonians because God is with you. Jeremiah 14, verses 13 through 16. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to these people, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, Prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and by famine those prophets will be consumed." And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. For I will pour out their evil upon them. In Jeremiah 6.14, Jeremiah says about the prophets, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Lightly. They didn't take it seriously. There's a gashing wound. Blood everywhere. And they healed it lightly, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. It is clear that Jeremiah had much in his life to find lamentable. His message was not a happy one, and even as it was not a happy one, the results of his message were not happy either. He suffered much. Interestingly, we get much more of a a personal look at Jeremiah than we do at almost any of the other prophets that we get. He, he laments not only the, the message that he has to give and the results of that message, but he laments even his own life. In Jeremiah 20, verses 14 and 15, we read that he says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Jeremiah was so known for being like that that we now have a, we've coined an entire group of phrases around him called a Jeremiah, which isn't used very often, but all it means is a lamentation. Somebody who is lamenting and grieving is penning a Jeremiah. So what can we learn about our own need to lament and what can we learn about how we ought to lament for things? First, we need to avoid gloating when we lament. If we were to look at this first chapter, we would notice right away that there's basically two things that sum up the chapter. First, there is grief, there is groaning, and there is affliction. It is an objective view of what has happened in Jerusalem, and he is noting the horrible, just horrible conditions in which people find themselves and their discomfort in those conditions. Verse 4, The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her. 
for they have seen her nakedness. She goes, she herself groans and turns her face away. All her people groan, in verse 11, as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. They groan, they are grieved, they are afflicted. And second to that, not only do they grow, they, they grieve, and not only are they afflicted and they groan, but there is absolutely no comfort for them. Verse 2 and 3. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Verses 16 and 17, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The very end of the chapter, these two themes meet. The grief and the groaning and the affliction meet the idea that there will never be comfort for these people. They, the nations, heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. This first chapter, Jeremiah goes out of his way to depict in as many ways as he possibly can the pain and the suffering of his people. Not just his own pain and suffering, but their honest and goodness pain and suffering. And he portrays it in a way that makes it overwhelming and unrelenting. There is no comfort for them. There, there is no end to this. They will suffer this way. Surprisingly, what we find in here, though, is absolutely no gloating. Given what Jeremiah has told them all along, that this destruction is coming, that there is horrible pain and suffering coming to you, you need to listen to me and prepare yourselves for it. The reaction that the people had to Jeremiah's preaching was, well, that he be beaten and placed in stocks by a priest in Jeremiah 20. That he's threatened with death in the temple of God by the priests and prophets of Judah in Jeremiah 26. That everyone, including those in the highest of authorities, disregarded the things that he said to them, continually disregarded, including King Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 36. Again imprisoned and again beaten in Jeremiah 37. In Jeremiah 38, they took him, threw him into a cistern, which thankfully didn't have water in it, but was thick with mud so that he sank into it and had to be lifted out. He was forced to flee his homeland to go into Egypt, where God had warned the Jews not to go in Jeremiah 43. No one listened to him. They actively sought to destroy him. They actively sought to silence him. And yet Jeremiah's response to this is not to gloat over their failure. Jeremiah's righteousness is vindicated. His foes were shown to be the fools that he proclaimed them to be. And they punished him even during his repeated warnings. And still he does not stand over them as though boastful of the things that he has been shown, boastful of the fact that he was right and they were wrong. Instead, he realizes that this is not a place for boasting, but it is a place for mourning. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And that is the deal. When you gloat over people, when you have an attitude of saying, why, see, I told you, I told you so. I, I knew that this destruction would come upon you. You are treating them with contempt and you are treating yourself as righteous. So Jesus told this parable to them. Two men went up into a temple to pray, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to stand over people while their world crushes around them, while, while devastation is reaped in their lives, and you stand there and you say, I told you this would happen. I told you, and yet you were steadfast in your sin. Jesus says, be careful, because you're not going to be justified with that speech. You ought to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. A lament is not to be gloating over those who suffer, even if it is their own fault. And certainly, Jeremiah knew these people deserved the suffering they got. The wrath of God was being poured out upon them. He's not walking that back. He's not saying, oh, unfortunately, you suffered. He's saying, it's right that you suffered, but oh, the suffering. Are you able to lament with those whose sin has brought them low? Are you able to mourn for the effects that sin has in the world? When you watch the effects that sin has had on a person, you watch it crush their lives, do you think you're getting what you deserve? Or do you think, oh, the suffering, and lament with them? Secondly, address the Lord's role. Chapter 2 takes a very severe turn. Listen to simply the verse six verses of this chapter and to what I'm emphasizing as we go through this sixth chapter. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who are delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid in ruin its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste to his booth like a garden, laid in ruins the meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest." Who destroyed Jerusalem? The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Yes, it's true. If you read through Jeremiah, it's quite clear that God will then crush Babylon for how they acted. But Jeremiah is also clear that these people who are so consumed with idolatry, so consumed with spending time worshiping other gods. This is why he continually calls them adulteresses and uses sexual language to refer to their adultery. That was the wife of God. Israel was set aside as his bride, and yet she found other lovers. And so he talks about her as though she's unclean sexually. The reason why is precisely because of the adultery. God punished them with Babylon. But it is God who did this. And for those people who are so prone to see other gods, who are so prone to think that other gods can help and other gods exist and other gods will provide for them, think of the conclusions they might draw from that, that God isn't able to protect them. Remember the false prophets were standing up saying, the Lord will never let this happen. But now it has happened. What are they supposed to think of it? perhaps they're going to think that, well, the God of Babylon must be stronger than our God. The God of Babylon is who we should have turned to. Maybe had we turned to the gods of Egypt before, they would have protected us. And Jeremiah is very clear. No, God brought this upon you. He wasn't bested. He wasn't outmaneuvered. God brought this upon you. About 10 years ago, there was theological movement, which is probably still around today, although it's not as prominent, called open theism. 
Open theism is the idea that God, while immensely knowledgeable and knowledgeable about all of the things that he can be, he has all of the knowledge he can have and could ever possibly have, while that is the case, because the future is still unknown, it hasn't actually happened, and because the future hasn't happened, God cannot actually know what will happen in the future. Even God is uncertain about the future. And so God can't speak with absolute certainty about the things that will happen in the future. The future is open. God could be likened to some sort of supercomputer, which gets all of the inputs from the world and kicks out likely scenarios for what's going to happen in the future. And so he has great predictive power, but it's simply predictive. It doesn't guarantee anything. This is not simply an academic problem, and it's not simply a problem about how God is. It is a personal and pastoral problem. As is shown in numerous writings that open theists have put forward, Greg Boyd is one of the foremost theologians who put this forward. And listen to this story that he gives about counseling a woman. She came to him in immense suffering. She had met her would-be husband about five or six years before. And uh, she was in college and she was praying about finding someone to marry, making sure that he was a godly man. And so she, she prayed fervently about this and she met a man in her church and they they continued to walk with one another and have fellowship with one another and she sought counsel about marrying him and he about marrying her and all of the counsel came back right and he appeared to have all of the indications of being a godly man so much so that not only did they marry before they graduated college but after they married immediately they were on the mission field in Thailand within two years she found out that he was committing adultery on her she confronted him and he appeared to repent but over the next couple of months became increasingly angry and frustrated with her treating her more and more poorly, eventually leaving her altogether to go with his new lover. It was when he told her that she found out that she was pregnant with his child. And she came to Greg and she was crushed. This is what Greg writes in his book. It's a longer quote, but stay with me. Initially, I tried to help Suzanne understand that this was her ex-husband's fault, not God's, but her reply was more than adequate to invalidate my encouragement. If God knew exactly what her husband would do, then he bears all the responsibility for setting her up the way he did. I could not argue against her point, but I could offer an alternative way of understanding the situation. I suggested to her that God felt as much regret over the confirmation he had given Suzanne as he did about his decision to make Saul king of Israel. Not that it was a bad decision. At the time, her ex-husband was a good man with a godly character. The prospects that he and Suzanne would have a happy marriage and fruitful ministry were, at the time, very good. Indeed, I strongly suspect that God had influenced Suzanne and her ex-husband toward this college with their marriage in mind. Because her ex-husband was a free agent, not major league free agent, but like free choice. He, he has the ability to choose bad or good, free agent. Because he was a free agent, however, even the best decisions can have sad results. Over time, and through a series of choices, Suzanne's ex-husband had opened himself up to the enemy's influence and became involved in an immoral relationship. Initially, all was not lost, and God and others tried to restore him, but he chose to resist the prompting of the Spirit, and consequently his heart grew darker. Suzanne's ex-husband had become very different from the man that God had confirmed to Suzanne to be a good candidate for marriage. This, I assured Suzanne, grieved God's heart at least as deeply as it grieved hers. The end result of this is him saying, listen, you want to know why this happened to you? God didn't know. He didn't know. All of the information that was provided to God was provided to you, and he thought he was a godly man. And so God isn't culpable for the, the affair that your husband had on you. He is not the wronged one. He grieves with you the same way that you grieve because he didn't know. He couldn't have known. Is this helpful? I mean, my goodness. First, it doesn't relieve God's culpability at all. Boyd says that God had influenced Suzanne and her ex-husband toward this college with their marriage in mind. But apparently, God didn't have the wherewithal. He didn't have the, the, the 
foresight, even with all of the information that he was getting, to see that that man was going to end up with that woman. He, he didn't see the lust in the man's heart. He didn't see their eye contact. He didn't see the way that they looked at each other. He didn't see that first touch happening. And what's more, that even if he did, he didn't put anything in their way. He could have put a snake in the door. He could have given the man a flat tire. He could have killed the man. But the Lord didn't do any of that. The Lord is still, according to Boyd, culpable. Was God inept? Knowing what was going to happen, seeing what was going to happen, but unable to stop it? Does that comfort you more? To know that disaster is going to happen in your life? To know that God wants to stop it, but he can't? Is that what's going to give you aid in your time of trouble? We just sing, a mighty fortress is our God. The whole Bible speaks against that. You see, running from the sovereignty of God causes way more problems than it solves. Jeremiah knew that. The Jews were never, ever to believe that what happened was outside of God's sovereignty or knowledge or ability to stop it was the product of it. The Jews were to know that far from God not wanting this to happen, he had grander and more important reasons for it to happen. God ordained the Babylonians to come and crush his people. He ordained, although his hands are free from sin, all of the evil to befall them. Far from being a helpless bystander while he watched the nations plunder his people. Far from being a weak warrior while he watched the soldiers destroy Judah's army. Far from being an inept God who could not overwhelm the foreign gods who came around him. Far from being a God who frets over his own inability to bring good in the world. This God works for good even in the midst of what appears to be the grandest and greatest evil you can imagine. It was to bring these people, the very people of God, to a place of comfort. Hosea 6.1 reminds us, as Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, one might put it, with Christ that we may live before him. God's hands are not dirty with evil, but God's sovereignty stands behind everything. And Jeremiah would not suffer to allow the Jews to think anything else. Third, therefore you must appraise your hope. When you lament, appraise your hope. These penalties did not come down on Jerusalem and Judah alone. They were not felt by only those who failed to trust in the Lord, but Many people, as Elijah might have heard, did not bow the knee to Baal. They suffered along with this. Jeremiah himself suffers. And we hear this in the first 10 verses of this. And you could go through the rest of the third chapter. We don't have time to read all 66 verses, but let's just read those first 10 verses. Jeremiah writes, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he, is, he, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call. And cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. At times, the evil and the destruction that happens in this world seems indiscriminate. This is why whenever we see Acts of God in nature, tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes. It is so foolish, and I would say blatantly stupid, to call these things the unmitigated wrath of God upon people. People looked at New Orleans and they say, oh, it was so, it was so 
overwrought with sexual sin, and therefore God brought Katrina. Listen, there were people of God that lost their lives in that. Are, you think so little of Christ that you think that God would send a flood to kill his own people? Or does Romans 8 not apply to them as well? God only promises good to those who love him. Sometimes it is more like Matthew 5, 44 and 45 in reverse. So in that passage, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's goodness is seen in that he pours out his goodness on everybody, whether they're good or whether they're bad. But sometimes the wrath of God, sometimes the very nature of what looks to be the wrath of God and the the nature of evil in this world falls on the just and the unjust. Quite often it does. Luke 13 is another good indication of this. Jeremiah, even as God pierced him along with sinners, knows well that his hope yet is still in God. It is one thing for him to talk like he is suffering alongside those who have no comfort. But Jeremiah knows something is different from him and from the rest of the people. While they have no comfort, while they will grieve continuously, while they will groan continuously under the weight of God's judgment, Jeremiah is not like that. And of course they would suffer this way. They run to other gods. They, they want to trust in other gods. They want to trust in the military might of Egypt and, and of Assyria and of other countries to protect them in their own might and in their own flesh. They will always be without comfort as long as they turn to that. But Jeremiah knows better. And in 17 through 25, Jeremiah says this, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So my hope from the Lord... Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Notice verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. When God's anger burned. Jeremiah knew who God was and that his promises to his people would always be fulfilled. This is not just because he read Deuteronomy, which he had, but it's also because God had revealed it to him. In Jeremiah 31, Verses 31 through 33, we have these well-known verses prophesying what has happened in our lives. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. These promises, friends, have come true in Christ for us. He who through his resurrection has made all things new. He has purchased on the cross our forgiveness. He has purchased on the cross our freedom. He has created us new again by providing his spirit that we might have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, so that the law of God might be written on our hearts. He sent his spirit precisely in the book of John, time and time and time again, as what? The comforter for us. When you see how God brings peace pain and suffering on others, even as we read in Sunday school this morning. That pain and suffering is not always judgment, but it is sometimes an incredible amount of mercy. And when he brings it to you, friend, realize that sometimes God brings you difficulties to bring you low that you might see Christ. If God has brought you low, he does not do this simply to destroy you, but sometimes quite obviously, to show you that your only hope is in Jesus, not in your own might, 
Not in chariots and horses as we read about this morning. Not in the things of the world. Not in chance, not in karma. Not in the foreign gods of the nations. Not in science, not in technology. Not in the power of your will to simply grind out life. But only through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ will you find peace and security. Friends, this is the center of the book of Lamentations. God struck his people, not simply to scatter them, but in scattering them, that they might long to come back to him. Assess your hope. Where does your hope lie? Does it lie in the things of the world? Or does it lie in the Lord your God, who's made grand and great promises to you in Jesus Christ? When you see people grieved and brought low by their sin, give thanks to God in Christ. When you see yourself brought low in things of this world, when your job takes a turn that it shouldn't, when your family life is difficult, when anything goes wrong in your life, when you lament over the state of America, over the state of the church, over the state of your family, when you do so, thank God that there is a better place awaiting us. Appraise your hope. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, Paul writes this. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. He wrote a very, very hard letter to the Corinthians, and it grieved the Corinthians. He says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And here are words that are often skipped over, but are incredibly important, that leads to salvation without regret. That means you would suffer it all over again in order to know the thing that God was teaching you to begin with. Whereas worldly grief only produces death. Friend, to be brought low by God is to know grief, but it is grief that he desires to lead you to salvation. That is your hope. Fourthly, in the fourth chapter, we would say that it should be an alert to others. Again, in the fourth chapter, we have this huge change in the nature of the language. Immediately, we see that there is this depiction not only of what the state of Judah is, not the state of Jerusalem is, but of what it used to be as well. Again, the first ten verses. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of nursing infants stick to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple Embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire, but now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. That last is probably not a metaphor. That change. They were this, and now they are this. Compassionate mothers. Not falsely compassionate, honestly Truly compassionate women have been changed by what has happened so that they are willing to kill and to boil their own children in order to have food. This change has been great. And later in this chapter, Jeremiah says it is something that would have been unforeseeable to the world. In verse 12, he says, The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. It seemed like their security was there, that they had it, that no one could penetrate the walls, that no one could come in and get them. They were safe in Jerusalem. But now Jerusalem lies burned. 
so much for their security. And this is precisely the point. This is a merciful thing to have written to you, friends. It is a merciful thing. God is here warning you of your security and the things that you think you're okay in. Do not take your own might as a sign of your own future well-being, for God can remove any obstacle to bring you down. Don't think of all of your riches as though your bank account can't be emptied overnight. Don't think that living in America, you are, well, above having this kind of thing happen to you because you are not. Again, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and another parable. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, it's clearly about covetousness, but listen to what happens to this gentleman. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He said, I will will be secure for years. I've got it good, so I can just kind of sit back and relax and take it easy. And God shows up and he says, no, this night, this night, your soul is required of you. Your security means nothing. Your future plans mean nothing. It is an all-out alert that all of the security that you might be provided in America, all the security you might be provided in your life, all of the wealth that you might have and the might that you might have is nothing. God comes in a second for you. Listen to how Jeremiah ends the chapter. He ends it by talking to Edom, the cousin or brother of Israel. Jacob and Esau were the two brothers. Jacob inherits the promises. Esau does not. Edom comes from Esau. They were always at one another's throats. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. He says, you can laugh it up while you want to, friend. But that day of judgment's coming for you as well. Let us be warned. Fifthly, let us accept our role. Again, a major change in this last chapter. Verses 1 through 7 stops looking at Jeremiah's life individually or the, what is happening outside, but Jeremiah is now including himself with everything else that has happened. They're, they're sort of surrounding one another. He's talking about the nation as a whole. Verses 1 through 7, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and no more. We bear their iniquities. He says, I am one of the people of Israel. I identify with them. They are my people and we are all suffering alike. Listen, you are part of America, whether you like it or not. And if you are going to complain about the downfall of America, realize that that downfall is partially your downfall as well. Jeremiah was not the one who was responsible for this. And he says, our fathers sinned and we bear their Im- iniquities. But Jeremiah also does something else. He takes blame on himself in verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. Not they have sinned. He doesn't just go around pointing the finger at everyone else in Judah and saying, you know that they have really sinned against you, God, and I am so glad that I'm not like them. He says, no, we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. The same sort of idea is found incredibly in the book of Daniel. 
So Jeremiah was alive during a huge portion of this, and he was an adult when all of this was going on. Daniel was an infant when this was going on, and he was to be a young man when Babylon actually came in and took him away. And yet Daniel is going to stand up and pray before God, confessing his own sin along with the sins of Judah. The saints of old did not distance themselves. They realized that as a nation, there is such a thing as corporate wrong and corporate sin and national sin. Daniel was but a child when he was led away, yet he says things like, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We. Let us make sure that we are inspecting ourselves. Don't just lament over the sins of others, but realize that we as a nation, we as a church, you as families, bear the responsibility for all of those things. We ought to lament the racial divides in our country. But do you not think that you have sin in this matter as well? We ought to lament the poverty in the world, but do you not think that your own greed has played a role in that? We ought to lament the hatred in our country. Do you not think that your own rhetoric simply throws fuel on that fire? We ought to lament the weak devotion of many Christians, but we don't see our own lack of love for the Lord. We ought to lament the lack of good teaching in the church, but do we seek out good teaching? Do we provide good teaching? And do we listen to good teaching when it's presented to us? We ought to lament the moral decline of our country, but do we understand the church's role in allowing a great deal of that moral decline? Not in, not in the stadiums, but in the pews. It has been allowed for decades. It has been allowed in churches that uphold biblical principles in so many areas, except for the ones that they find convenient to forget. We have a role in these things. We don't get to stand aloof over the country and lament how everyone else is taking it down the drain. You have a role to play in this. Has it ever occurred to you that when you see the problems around you, the evil of the world and the destruction that it reaps, has it ever occurred to you that you are not the answer to the problem, but you are part of the problem yourself? What we need is not for the world to become more like us. What we need is the world to become more like Christ. That includes us. We should then pray like Jeremiah prays. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us. Make us what we should be, what we once were. Make us what you want us to be. That is the prayer of lament. When we look around and we see the devastation that sin reaps in people's lives, in the nation, around the world. We are never to stand aloof from it. It is to drive us to our knees and pray and lament and cry out for God to do something in us through the work of Jesus Christ that we might have hope for something better than here. Avoid gloating. Think through the Lord's role. Appraise your hope, alert others, and accept your role. Finished with the story from John 11 briefly. John 11 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And he dies because Jesus decides that he's not going to go heal him. He's told. And Jesus sits back down, has a cold iced tea, and says, We got to wait a couple days before we leave. Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up. 
Jesus knows well what's about to happen. He does this, he says, so that God's glory could be shown by him raising him from the grave. Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the grave. This isn't something that just hits Jesus at the spur of the moment. He let him die so that he could raise him from the grave. And yet when he shows up, Jesus doesn't think of this as some sort of magic trick. He doesn't have a smirk on his face like he knows something that no one else knows. It's not a happy moment for him, even though it is filled with God's glory. John 11, verses 32 through 35. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he, he, she says this to him, which he knows to be true. And he takes a step back and he looks around and he sees her weeping. He sees all of them weeping. Not fake mourning, not making a scene of it, but truly weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you lain him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. That word translated deeply moved, it means he was angry. He's upset. It means to be indignant more than it means to be greatly moved. He's angry. Why? I doubt highly he's angry at himself for allowing it to happen. Rather, what he's angry about is the evil of sin in the world. That death would come to take Lazarus anyways. And make no doubt about it, Lazarus, Lazarus deserved to die. He was a sinner just like anyone in this room. And yet Jesus was more than willing to be angry about the effects of sin in his life. He was more than happy to be angry about the grief and the frustration that was shown all over in this scene. So angry that he himself was moved to tears, even though he knew that Lazarus was only a moment away from walking out of that tomb. Friend, let us have this mind of Christ. Yes. It is the sin of people out in the world and it is our sin that leads to our downfall. But that should grieve us. It should never make us gloat. It should bring lamentation to the people of God. And then it should bring thankfulness that Christ is the resurrection and the life and that we do not face the effects of sin forever. Let us thank God in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the work that you have done among your people. We are thankful for all of the good gifts that you give to us. We are thankful that we can have laments before you that are heard and laments that you answer. We are not like the people of Jerusalem who sought after other gods and sought their own security. We are like Jeremiah who have a hope in the world, a secure hope, a hope that Jeremiah only hoped for. We have the hope made secure of Jesus Christ who not only was killed for our sins, but was raised again for our justification. Father God, thank you for that gift. And we pray as we look around that we would be people broken by the sin of the world. Not arrogant, not haughty, but honestly seeking your face that you might be gracious to sinners. We ask that you are gracious to us, even in our sin this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.